go ahead and start with this session. I am tasked with addressing the question of what is a local church? Uh, Andrew talked quite a bit about the universal or the global church, but what is a local church? And I want to start with a sentence that is true and is emotional, is practical, and is biblical. And the sentence that I want to start with is, I love Grace Church of Orange. It's a true statement, it's a biblical statement, it's a practical statement. There is an emotion to that, but I love Grace Church of Orange. And the question I would have to start with is, what does that mean? What does it mean that I love Grace Church of Orange? Do, does it mean that I love this building? What is exactly Grace Church of Orange? When I say I love Grace Church of Orange, am I talking about an amorphous, undefined, unspecific entity or group of people? What am I talking about when I say I love Grace Church of Orange? To love is to know, to serve, to sacrifice for, to encourage, to run with. I say I love Grace Church of Orange. What am I talking about? Throughout Scripture, we're called to love one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, and now I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. First Peter, Peter says, above everything, love one another earnestly because love covers over many sins. In Romans 13, Paul says, be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. John says in 1 John, my children, our love should not be just words and talk, it must be true love which shows itself in action. And the verses go on and on, we're called to love one another. And my question is, who are we to love when we love one another? Are we to just love unspecific, undefined, unknown people, or are we called to love one another, are we called to love specific people? These directions, these commands that are given in Scripture are primarily directed towards people in the church. And we are called to love people. We are called to practice all of the one another's, encourage one another, admonish one another, uh, serve one another. We are to do these one another's not to unknown, unspecified people, but to specific people. We are to do this, to put it most directly, to the human beings that God has given to us to do life together with namely the church that he has put us in. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Again, here we have this this call to love and to good works. And how does that happen? In what context does that happen? The very next phrase is, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, there's another one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These one another's play out with regard to specific people who gather together, who come together regularly, who meet together, that are loving each other, stirring each other up, encouraging each other, pointing to the return of Christ together. This is not an amorphous, undefined group of people. It's specific people that we are called to do this with. And that would be in the context of those that we gather together with, namely the local church. The universal church, as Andrew discussed, 
is the church of all born-again, regenerated Christians. Real Christians make up the universal church. Transformed Christians. But that group is undefined, worldwide, unknowable in its entirety apart from God. God knows but we don't know all of these people. We don't know who they all are. There isn't structure to that worldwide. But the local church is defined by both its structure and its specificity. The local church is defined by its structure and its specificity. How do we know structure and specificity? In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Who's building the church? Jesus is building his church. That means that the church, both universal and local, focuses on him, it's directed by him, it's led by him. He then, and he alone, is the determiner of what church is. He is the determiner of what church should be. So let's get this clear to begin with. Jesus is, the good news, Jesus is for our ultimate eternal joy in him. Rejoice in the Lord always. The man who finds the treasure buried in the field and with joy sells all that he has to buy the field so he can have that treasure. One day we're going to be standing in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Andrew talked about that we're going to be coming to the scene in Revelation chapter 5 where we are singing and worshiping our brains out, out of great joy because of what the Lamb has done for us. Jesus is for our joy, point number one. Point number two is that so when Jesus directs his church, it is ultimately for his glory and for our joy. The church is a gift to us. It is not a burden, it is a gift. It is a gift that drives us to Jesus who is the source of all joy. He is the treasure. And so we joyfully want to pursue where God has called us to be in the context of a local church. And there is a lot of instruction that we are given regarding the church. We have specific directives for the structure and the specificity of the local church given to the churches of Galatia, the church of Ephesus, the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae, the church of Rome, the church of Corinth, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Pontus, the church of Cappadocia, the church of Bithynia, and many others. There are directions on here's how you do church. The point is there's just an overwhelming portion of scripture that speaks to the nature and the operation of the local church. 17 of the 27 books of the New Testament are either letters to churches specifically or two pastors of churches. There's an awful lot of scripture committed to what is to happen in a local church. There's direction for church leadership. There's direction for qualifications for elders, for deacons, direction for men's roles, for women's roles, what older people should do, what younger people should do. All people to each other. There's direction for preaching, for singing, for praying in churches. And not just that we should do these things, but how to do them. There's direction for relationships, for dealing with inevitable conflicts. There's directions for discipline within the church, for excommunication from the church, for evangelism, for communion, for baptism, for using spiritual gifts. And again, it's not just that we should do them, but how to do them. There's instruction in all of these things. Jesus builds his church. Jesus is building Grace Church of Orange. And so our goal is to passionately pursue what he directs not what we want, and so that we trust in doing so, it leads to the praise and worship of Him and to our ultimate joy. And so I love Grace Church of Orange. So the question then is, what is a local church? How is Grace a local church? And we're going to address this in the context of several questions. First, who should be in a local church? 
Who should be in a local church? The answer is going to be very quick and easy on one hand. It's going to be all Christians. All true Christians should be in a local church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And he goes on and he says, uh, he says to, to Peter, after Peter answers, he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock is those who recognize who Jesus is and what he has come to do and all that is encompassed in, in, in who Jesus is. On this rock, on this statement you've made, Peter, of who I am, I will build my church. True believers recognize Jesus, follow Jesus, exalt Jesus. That's who is in his church. Number one, who's in the local church? We can just put that simply, regenerated people, Christians. Number two, who should be in the, in the, uh, in the local church? Um, or I'm sorry, the second, the second question, what, what is in the notes? My, I don't know if mine consists. Essential components of, what are the essential components of a local church? Um, number one is the essential components of a local church start with being gospel-centered and theologically sound. Gospel-centered and theologically sound. So again, looking at this, uh, this verse, uh, when Jesus uh, came to Peter and, and, and what I just read, he says to Peter, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, some others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's saying, everybody's getting it wrong who Jesus is. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, getting the theology right, getting Jesus right, getting the gospel right is essential. Um, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, uh, he says, if your brother sins against you, uh, well, I'm sorry, back in, in the passage here with Matthew chapter 16, in the same passage where he's talking to Peter, when he says to Peter, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus says the same thing to all Christians in Matthew chapter 18. We are given as believers, as the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys to the kingdom of heaven? I can say, you can say as a believer, you are going to heaven and you are going to hell. We can say that as believers. Now, I can't know your heart to say that, but I know what the gospel is. And I know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I know that if you, if, that if you confess your sins, that he will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that if you repent of your sins and turn and follow Jesus, you will be saved. I know that is the key to the kingdom of heaven. I know what the key is to the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. My sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus died, paid that penalty, rose from the dead. I know the gospel. The gospel is the key to the kingdom of heaven. The essential nature of a church is that it is built on that truth, that we are all, as those in the church, are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, a church is scripture-centered, not only gospel-oriented and theologically sound, but we're scripture-centered. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says to the Thessalonians, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The church is based on scripture. It's gospel-focused, it's scripture-oriented, 
It's people hear and accept the, God, the, the Scripture not as the Word of men, but as what it is, the Word of God. And that Word does its work in God's people. What are the essential components of, the, uh, of, a, of a local church? People are committed within that church to doing the one another's, loving one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, all of the one another's. Also, the structure of a local church. So we have the essential components of, of a local church, and now we come to the structure. And I might be going off of the outline. I might have changed this a little bit, but the structure of a local church. How do we, how do we put the, the church together? What is that made up of? And the first, the first point I want to give to you regarding what is the structure of a local church is that it's a defined group of people. It's a defined group of people. Is, does Grace Church of Orange encompass all believers in Orange County? No. It is a, there is, it's, it, we are limited in scope in that we are a defined group of people. We are the people committed to this place and to come together to pursue Christ together. There is a defined group of people. In Acts chapter 2, um, verse 41, um, Right after uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, it says, So then those who had received his words were baptized, and that day they, there were added about 3,000 souls. How many souls were added? How did they know? Somebody counted them. Somebody knew and said, this person, this person, they were gathering together, they had an idea, they knew who were their people from the very beginning. How many people were in the upper room before that ever happened? After Jesus ascended. Well, immediately following the, the 13, then you had another group that gathered together that were, anybody know? It was 107 more than 13. There were 120 that were gathered in the upper room. How do we know? Somebody counted them. There's a specific number of them. In Acts um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it refers to the 120 people. So we have this numbering, this counting, and as you go through the book of Acts, notice how many times it refers to how many people were added to the church on any given day. There's specific numbers recited over and over again. Somebody's counting. Somebody's keeping track. The church is made up of a specific group of people. There's a defined group of people. Number one is the structure of the church. Number two, these are committed people. The church is made up of a defined group of people who are committed to that body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, what would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Who arranged them? God. God arranged the members in the body as you chose. No, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Church, we are given is, is a picture of being the body, of being a body, specifically and ultimately played out as the body of Christ. 
And we all play a vital role within that body. And how does that role play out within the context of our interactions together, our working together, our pursuing Christ together? We, are, we come together functioning in different roles and for different purposes together as a part of a body. Now, we'll come back to this in a minute, and this is where it gets a little bit sticky, but can I live without my hand if my hand were to be amputated? Yeah, I can live without that hand. But is there a purpose for my hand? Does it belong as a part of my body? Yes. Can I, uh, can I get certain organs transplanted? Can I lose one and have another? Yeah, I can, I can have that. But you just go and like make an appointment on Monday afternoon and say, I want to come in and do that tomorrow morning and then boom, you have like new lungs the next day. It's, things can change, parts can change in the body, but it's not something that we go and we just do very simply and casually. It's something that's a really, really big deal. And I would suggest to you that the same is true in the body of Christ, that when we start changing body parts, we're not saying, I want to be clear about this, we're not saying you can't ever change churches, and a lot of you have changed churches to come to grace, but we are saying it's not something that should be taken lightly. We don't go changing body parts lightly. There is a lot of weight to that. I'm actually going to come at the end of this, we're going to talk about what is a biblical way to change churches. What does that look like? But we are a part of the body of Christ, and that's an essential um, part of our understanding of the local church. Third, local church has a plurality of elders, or has biblical leadership, and st- starting with a, a plurality of elders. Um, I could give you all the references later, but virtually every reference in the Bible to elders is in the plural. There are, um, there's, there's an assumption that there is a, a multiple elders in a church, that it's not ever led or dominated by one, and that all the elders are in submission to each other, and are accountable to each other. The elders in a church are called to shepherd the flock of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul exhorts the elders of the Ephesian church to watch over and shepherd their people. And I would just note that it's difficult to shepherd people if you don't know who they are. It's difficult to shepherd people if you don't know who they are. Again, this comes back to there are, we have a defined group of people who are committed to a church and who have biblical elders who know who they are and care for them. And if you, don't, if you take away any of those parts, it doesn't work. If the people aren't committed, how can they be known? If, the people aren't, if there's not a defined number of people, I can't, as an elder at Grace Church, be responsible for and, and shepherding all of the believers in the state of California. There's a defined group of people who are committed to a specific place with biblical, quali- biblically qualified elders providing shepherding to them. Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Speaking to the elders, he says this. Shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There is to be elders in the church, and there are cautions, there are there are, are, are bumpers put in place, guardrails put in place that are to um, keep elders from domineering, from, from getting too excited about their position of leadership, but it is to be a humble leadership of mutual accountability and submission to the other elders as well as to the people in the church. But there is a leadership responsibility 
and a spiritual responsibility that elders in a church have. I told the, uh, the anchor group and the high school group at winter retreats uh, the last couple of weeks, um, we gathered together for a weekend and I said, hey, this is a great time for us to come together, but we are not the church. This is not the church. This is a subsect of the church. We are not the church. We do not have a plurality of elders. We do not have um, all of the, the dynamics that are, that are um, encompassed in the structure of a church. We are a subset of the church doing something for a particular weekend, but that doesn't make up for the church. Elders are called to shepherd in three primary ways. They're called to protect the sheep from error. Acts chapter 20 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Elders are called to shepherd the flock and to protect them from error. Second, elders are called to pray for those entrusted to them. Uh, James chapter 5 says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you know that happens in this church? Um, And just as a quick sidebar, I so don't have the time for this, but still I think it's important. Um, The elders of our church pray over people who are sick. Somebody who's sick, they call, the elders come, and we pray And this may sound strange, we lay our hands on them, and we anoint them with oil, and we pray for them. And do you know why we do that? Because the Bible says to do it. What does the anointing with oil have to do with it? You know what? Honestly, I really don't understand that. I could give you all kinds of attempts to give you a biblical response to that, but I really don't understand why we do that. But you know what? It says it, so we do it. We're one of those weird churches that we're just going to do what the Bible says. This comes back to a church, a local church is one committed to Scripture. But that's what we do in, as, as elders. We pray for, for, I can tell, you all, if you come to Grace regularly, you're on a list. We have a defined group of people at Grace Church of Orange. You are on a list and the elders pray for you by name. You're divided up amongst, uh, amongst the elders. There are multiple elders responsible for different groups within the list. You get prayed for by name. I know Pastor Mike doesn't even want me to tell you this, but Pastor Mike regularly walks around the church with lists of people from Grace Church of Orange praying for you all by name. Elders are to protect from error, are to pray for those who are entrusted. And they are to give an account for those who are entrusted to them. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. There's a responsibility that elders have. Don't miss this. There's a responsibility that elders have to keep watch over your souls and to give an account. How do the elders give an account if they don't know who you are? Or if you're not committed or involved enough for them to know who you are? Let them do so with joy and not with groaning. What's the responsibility for all of us? For the, and this applies to me. I'm an elder. I'm responsible to the rest of the elders. Let the rest of the elders give an account. They're, they're responsible for me too. And each of the elders for each other, they're responsible to give an account for my soul. And my obligation is let them do that with joy and not with groaning. Be a part of the church in such a way that does that. And then he says in verse 18, pray for us. Isn't that the right thing to say? 
And I would say that would be the, the heart of our elders as well. Church is made up of defined group of people, committed people, biblical leadership, and then it's made up of submitted people. That same verse we just read says, obey your leaders and submit to them. We don't like to talk about that, but that's the call for each and every one of us. Do you know that this applies to Pastor Mike as well? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Pastor Mike is under, is, is to obey and to submit to the other elders in our church. It's true of each of the elders in the church. It's true of each one of us. There's nobody here that is not under the authority of somebody else in this church. God's structured it in that way. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor over you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Hebrews 13, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Um, another quick side note, you walk into church on a Sunday morning and you feel like you're not getting a lot out of the sermon, and if you ever say that to me, one of the first things I'm going to say back to you is, how much did you pray for Pastor Mike this week? How much did you pray for Pastor Mike this week? Because I think your obligation to pray for him and the sermon that ultimately comes from this pulpit is just is on, on the congregation as much as it is on Pastor Mike. He has a special calling, but we have an obligation, a calling to be praying for him all, um, along the way. Why should someone be in a local church? Why should someone be in a local church? I'm just going to tell you very simply, there's a big case I could make on this. But um, being in a local church is essential to living worthy of the gospel. Being in a local church is essential to living worthy of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You want to live worthy of the, worthy of the gospel? You are to be... Standing firm with one spirit. That's with other people, so united that it's as if you have one spirit. You are to be coming together with one mind, multiple people with one mind, and to be striving together side by side for the gospel. All those things require to be worthy of the gospel, a coming together. You cannot live worthy of the gospel by yourself, according to this verse. You want to live worthy of the gospel, you do all these things with other people. And just as a note on this, as our culture becomes more and more divided, these attitudes of division seep and creep into the church, and opinions are rampant, and the expression of them are both loud and obnoxious. The bickering and strident positions of talking heads on cable news become our model, or the church's model, for resolving disagreement. Winning becomes the objective, rather than seeking and submitting to truth, let alone honoring the king who speaks the truth. And so we're raising generations of people who abhor such approaches, and they hide from any form of disagreement because in this age, disagreement has become, become synonymous with conflict and strife. And the result is that while we have rampant opinions expressed at full volume in some corners, we also have some who won't engage at all in other corners. And that's no better. They still hold their opinions just as firmly, but they refuse to submit those opinions to careful examination and study to determine if they're consistent with the decrees of God. And the context in which God has given us to do this is the local church. We are to strive together for the gospel. We are to be united in spirit. We are to have one mind coming together, submitting to truth in Scripture, having the mind of Christ, thinking like Christ, 
embracing truth. We're to do this together. It's God's design. And I'm, I'm encouraged how we've done this in our church just even recently in, in working through the doctrines of election and God's sovereignty. I've seen lots and lots of really healthy striving together to figure this out and to strain to hear the voice of God. It's not always healthy, but many times I think it has been edifying. And there's so many other matters in which God speaks that our human opinions cloud our understanding. We have differences in the church, women's roles in the church, social justice matters, elders' roles, immigration, the role of preaching, the style of musical worship, emphasis on certain doctrines or commands. We all have opinions on all of these. What makes the church different than the world is that we should be able to have these discussions and and disagreements in healthy, productive ways because our opinions shouldn't matter. Only God's opinion matters, and He's given us His written word. So we come back to the text, we wrestle with it together, we work through it together, we pray over it together, we point each other back over and over to the truth, seeking with everything in us to hear the voice of the shepherd. We want to be His sheep straining together to hear what he has to say to us. We can have differences, but we can still have unity without compromise. We're united in our endless pursuit of the shepherd's voice, and we do it together, leaving our own opinions at the foot of the cross. I'm going to go a couple of minutes late, Connor, so we'll figure that out. How should someone be part of a local church? What does that look like? How should someone be part of a local church? Can I just say, can we try really hard? I'm trying hard on this, and I said this at the retreats, so sorry to Anchored and high school people, but can we not ask people, where do you go to church? I I don't like that question. I know it's innocent most of the time, but let me tell you why. I go to the store. I go to a coffee shop. I don't go to church. Maybe physically I went to church today, but I I don't go to church. I'm part of a church. I'm connected to a church. I'm intertwined with a church. I'm I'm the finger. I'm maybe the fingernail of of a church, but I'm part of the body. I I don't go to my, I don't go to be a part of a body. I, you just, you are. Does that distinction make sense? We are, we are connected in a way that's totally different. You can go to a coffee shop one day and you're like, hey, tomorrow I want to go to this coffee shop and tomorrow I want to go to this grocery store. I'm gonna... We don't do that with a body. We are connected in a deeper, more tangible, regular way. In Acts chapter 2 it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds uh, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That doesn't sound to me like people just going to church on Sundays. That sounds to me like people pursuing Christ passionately together, fulfilling different roles, being intertwined in their lives. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This doesn't sound like people that just go to church. It sounds like people who are connected to a body of believers. The church is made up of 
of people and what, what it looks like is, is people who know other people in the church and are known by them. There are deep, intertwined relationships. The church is, is, is made up of people who are exercising their gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 14. It's filled with people who are participating in the church, engaging in the sermon, not just coming and saying, feed me, feed me, but praying for the pastor, coming, straining to pay attention and to engage in what's being said and singing together and praying for each other and doing all the one another's together. And what does it, what does it mean to be a part of a local church? What does it look like? It means being connected to the body. And I would just say, if you're not connected, if you don't feel connected, if you feel outside, fight with everything in you to find a way to be connected because you belong to the body. And everyone else, look all around and make sure everyone else is connected to the body. We need each other. We are designed to be pursuing Christ together. We are not doing this alone. It is equally incumbent on all of us to find everybody else and pull them along as it is for everybody else to fight to um, be a part of the church. If you're hanging off of a cliff and you're hanging on to a little root and you're about ready to fall into, and you're going to die, what should you do? You should fight like crazy to pull yourself up over that cliff and get, on, get safely on the edge. And if Russell is standing up there at the top of the cliff looking down at you and he's not helping you, you know what you should do? You pull yourself up and you fight to find your way up to get up on the cliff. And what should Russell do? I should be yelling at him, or if I'm there, I should be doing it, reaching down and pulling the other person up on the cliff. It's, there's an equal responsibility on both sides that we should be pulling people in and connecting everyone together. Last thing, how do you leave a local church in a healthy and biblical way? In Acts chapter 18, Verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. What's the point? Here we have Apollos, and he was going to move, and he moved, and when he moved, he moved to another church, and what did the disciples do? They wrote him a letter, or they wrote a letter to the new church, and they said, hey, here's Apollos, accept him, keep an eye on him, take care of him. There are multiple examples, if you pay attention in scripture, where Paul does the same thing. This is not an isolated incident. Somebody moves from one church to another, and the leaders of the church are saying, Hey, other church, take care of this guy. Take care of this woman. Pay attention to them. You know why they're saying that? Because they have a responsibility to watch over their souls of the people who have been entrusted to them and to give an account to God before them. If they have a responsibility to do that, then they should make sure that if somebody's going to leave the church, if somebody's going to leave Grace Church, we want to make sure that they're ending up in another good church. We have a responsibility to oversee that. If somebody is coming to us from another church, we want to make sure they've left in a healthy way and that, there is a, that there's a handoff in, in between that. That might seem a little strange, but the call is, is high and the stakes are high, and we want to make sure that people's souls are cared for. Ultimately, as, as people in a church, we have a responsibility to obey our leaders, and the leaders have a responsibility to give an account for our souls. If we're going to be moving from one church to another, we just need to be sure, what leaders are you obeying? 
who's, who's, who's giving an account for your soul? And so if you're going to move and you have challenges, um, or if somebody is, is coming to, to, our, to our church, we just want to make sure, has our relationships healthy? Is somebody fleeing broken relationships? And if there are theological differences and it's a Bible-based church, has there been a conversation with the leadership of the church to struggle, to fight, to work side-by-side side together for the gospel and to understand those differences? And, and we're just saying there should be conversation with that. There should be healthy relationships and there should be conversa- conversation with church leadership to say, how do we understand what the Bible says? And then people move and we want to say, are, are you going to end up in a good place where somebody's going to watch over your soul? Anyway, I completely blew my time, but um, we'll wrap up there. Lord, thank you for just the, the gift you've given to us of the local church. Thank you for Grace Church of Orange. This is not a perfect place, you know that well, but it is a place in which you are working and you are using us in each other's lives to make us more like Christ. And so I pray that you will, um, you will bless this church in that way, God, that you will use this place to raise up people who pursue you more passionately as we function in each other's lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.